heights like no one else before him or after. Gold and wisdom and marveling from the ends of the earth, the promises of, uh, to King David in 2 Samuel 7, to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, all coming true. And then today we get, we get the broken glass and the billy goat at the end to a massive downhill. Last time, I think we saw a bit of King Jesus in King Solomon. We saw him. Today, we're going to see, not, it's not that we're going to see Jesus, we're going to need Jesus as we look at King Solomon. And it all starts when we go back and look at the decisions he gave in 1 Kings 11. And there it is in 1 Kings 11. Open it up if you've lost it. Open, get the fingerprint, get the thing paneled in. Oh, it's me. Hey. Um, uh, uh, get the phone open, have a look at this Bible passage and look at the key word in chapter 11, verse 1. We've had all this great stuff. And a few people mentioned this last week. They said, you seem to think King Solomon's very good, don't you? He wasn't that great. Said, yeah, yeah, wait for it. The writer's getting there. One, uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 1, all the ones. King Solomon, here's the horrible word. However, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. However. Ah, it's not great, is it? However, and we need to recap a little bit where we've got up to. Because Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. And from chapter 3 onwards, we see all the bad decisions he made. Last time in chapter 10, we recapped from chapter 3 and looked at all the good stuff he did. Now we're going to go back to chapter 3 and look at all the bad stuff he did. He marries Pharaoh's daughter, which isn't a great move. To marry into the family that kept your ancestors prisoners and slaves for 400 years. And it wasn't just Solomon. The people were in a bad place too. As verse 2 of chapter 11, they were still sacrificing at the high places where you go to worship other gods. Solomon worshipped at the high places too because the temple wasn't yet built. Well, he soon fixed the lack of temple not being built problem. By building a temple. There's one good decision he made, but who did he use to build it? Who did Solomon use to build his temple? We left out that last week. Chapter 5, verse 13. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. What do you call a conscripted laborer? It's a slave. He makes his own people slaves. Then there's another decision he gave. In chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1, it took seven years to build the temple, but it took, it says in chapter 7, verse 1, it took Solomon 13 years, however, another big however, to con complete construction of his palace. So seven for God's house, but 13 for his own. Not a great decision he gave. What does it say when God's house takes seven years, but your house takes 13? As he builds a beautiful palace for himself. And how about all the horses we learned about last week? Well, God's never a fan of Israel having massive armies because God wants them to know, look, it's not going to be your might that wins the battle, but it's going to be by my spirit. So it shows you don't really trust God when you've got a whole city full of horses ready to go into battle with all the chariots and everything. So as we arrive back in chapter 11 and to our reading, we see the final straw of all the decisions he made. Well, not really the final straw, the final 700 straws and the final 300 whatever else, concubines. If you remember from week one, a concubine, it's not, a, it's not like a hedgehog or an echidna, that's a porcupine. A concubine is a, is a long-term serious girlfriend. 
And over a 40-year reign, 700 wives, 300 concubines, that's 1,000 women. That's a wedding every three weeks over a 40-year reign with another 300 uh, girlfriends on the side. Valentine's Day would have been very expensive. So here's the decisions as a wrap-up that he gave. He married Pharaoh's daughter, your enemy's daughter. He sacrifices in the high places. He takes his people slave to build the temple, takes twice as long to build his house as God's, and then all the gold that he had as well, and the horses and the wives and the concubines. But it's not a random list. It's the exact stuff God warned his people that the king shouldn't do in Deuteronomy 17. Here it is, way back in Deuteronomy 17. Have a look at this. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, don't go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Many people think that one kings actually is, is a commentary on how the people go on applying Deuteronomy. And this seems to be a concrete case of that. It's a don't list, but Solomon sees it as a job list. And it's an absolute disaster. He does all of them. And so after King Solomon, his son Rehoboam takes the throne. And 10 of the 12 tribes get ripped from him and become the north, confusingly called Israel. The south then gets called Judah, just two tribes. Gets called Judah, and confusingly, sometimes Israel. And it's that decision, all the decisions that Solomon gave, disobeying Deuteronomy 17, that leads to the kingdom being split in two. The north then gets taken and uh, taken over by the Assyrians. They then get mixed in, and they become the Samaritans of the New Testament. That's why they don't like each other. The south then gets taken off Kartharoth and gets taken out to Babylon hundreds of years later. They then return under the Persians. They get taken over by the Greeks. They get taken over by the Romans. That's just how ancient history goes. But it's these decisions here made by Solomon that lead us to there, we see in this passage. As Solomon goes from pagan... Uh, so he goes from prince to pagan. Let's find out why in our second point. It wasn't just the decisions he gave, but the decisions that enslave. The decisions that enslave. Watching Solomon is like watching a medical drama. You know, something like ER or Grey's Anatomy. And it, it's a, or House, because it's the start of the medical drama. Before the credits come up, there's just little Johnny. And he's at, a, at an athletics carnival. And everything's happening, and there's a relay race and long jump, and suddenly the camera pans over to the javelin. And little Johnny has been asked to go and collect a ball right in the middle of the javelin throwing area. And because it's a medical drama, you know what's going to happen next. You know something bad's about to happen. Well, here's Solomon. And it's like that medical drama. It's all set up. He's wise, and he's wealthy, and there's women. You just know something bad's about to happen. Under Solomon, Yahweh, the Lord, became one God amongst many godlets. They didn't even listen to God's word. Chapter 11, verse 2, back in our passage here. They were the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because surely they'll turn your hearts after their gods. God's word was for everyone not to marry into another religion. 
But they thought, ah, you know what? She's got her cultural quirks, but that only makes my faith stronger. False. It leads your heart away. And that's exactly what happened in verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And so he follows Ashtoreth and Molech. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He erects, verse 8, a high place, a new one for all the gods of his wives. And this is why the New Testament similarly is clear that Christians cannot marry non-Christians. It will lead their hearts astray. Dating a non-Christian, I've seen in my experience of 12 years of working for churches with teenagers and youth and students. Dating a non-Christian is the off-ramp of the Christian faith. When I meet a young man now and he says, ah, oh, you know, I just haven't been to church for a while. I can see why I've met up for coffee. Church is a bit of a struggle. The Bible, I haven't read my Bible much at the moment. Prayer doesn't seem to work. There's, there's a ceiling to my prayers. And I've learned after 10 years just to cut to the chase and ask the question, what's her name? What's her name? And it's not her fault. The decisions Solomon gave became decisions that enslave. And for Solomon it happens, verse 4, when he was old. Because the longer it goes on, the longer Solomon thinks to himself, do you know what? I can beat God's warning. I know better. I'll be okay. I can marry that 658th girl. I don't think that this compromise will have consequences. And I wonder if that's us that we begin to think, do you know what? I can beat God's promises. That this compromise won't have consequences. And we begin to wonder, the idolatry and the adultery, which one's first? Like the chicken and the egg, which one goes first? Is it that he married the girls and that then led his heart astray? Or is it that his heart was already kind of astray? He ignored God's warning, so he married the girls, so his heart then went astray. Because verse 4 says, if you marry her, you'll marry her gods. But for Solomon to ignore that, he must have already been slightly ignoring what God says to begin with. So rather than chicken and egg, it's more like Russian dolls. I'm not really a fan of Russian dolls. They're just so, uh, just so full of themselves. <laughs> you can write that on the fridge at work, and people will have a little chuckle as they get their coffee tomorrow morning. That's a great line. Don't like Russian dolls, they're just so full of themselves. But that's what it's like here. Idolatry, adultery, idolatry, adultery, idolatry, adultery, idolatry, adultery. And so the decisions just enslave. For Solomon, he relied on his wealth and his women. It's money and marriage. It's relationship and riches. And his wise hearing heart at the beginning of 1 Kings 1 to 11 becomes a hard heart. His decisions enslave. And we are like Solomon. We are in danger of worshipping idols. And idolatry is having something other than God running our lives, being the authority, being what we worship, being who makes the decisions. Our real gods are those things that if we had to lose them, we'd be utterly lost. That if they died, we die. 
They've become our master and we their slaves. And for Solomon, it was sex and money. But of course, for the Bible, you have to do a lot of historical, cultural, contextual work. And so it can't be as simple as just it was sex and money for him and it's sex and money in our cult. Oh, no, wait, it's exactly what it is today. As we read the New Testament and find out that the same idols there were true in the New Testament and are true today. It's sex and money. So let's look at those two in turn. Money. Money. Money then sex. Um, there's a new kind of, uh, here's Solomon with all his money. Every three years, a big ship full of gold would come along. There's a new kind of movie at the moment. Have you noticed that when we were kids, the Disney made cartoons of stuff, and now they're making the real-life version of it? Uh, and so there's real-life, uh, they started those things early, real-life 101 Dalmatians, but it's just, there's lots and lots, real-life Cinderella, real-life whatever. And then there's real-life Beauty and the Beast that happened recently. And it's Beauty and the Beast is a lovely story about how you can fall in love with anyone, no matter what they look like. So long as they have a massive castle, a full butler service, and loads of money. That's basically what the story is. And we can't get away from money, even in sweet little Disney movies. So what does Jesus say about money? Let's see what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. Let's have a read. No one can serve two masters. You see, it's about gods, he's saying. You'll either hate one, love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It was true for Solomon. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true for us. Money will enslave. A person with money as their God cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. Money enslaves us. We need to be free from the love of money, Hebrews 13 tells us. It took King Solomon's kingdom away from him. And it will take us out of God's kingdom. Money does not make us count even if we have an account. Money does not matter. The size of our wallet does not give us worth. Money is good, but it is not God. And the diagnostic question that Jesus is asking here is not just what's my standard of living, but what's my standard of giving? Giving money away is one surefire way to ensure that money doesn't hold me in its power. In which we say, I am the master of you, because God's the master of me. I am the master, so I, I'm so in control of your money, I'm just going to give you away. You are powerless and worthless to me, so I'm going to give it away. And for parents, why not start that at a young age with your children? Get them thinking like that now. And help them see that it hurts. That they cling to it and say, but yeah, it's just a little round thing. It's just a little bit of plastic. Used to be paper, didn't it? It used to be plastic. That's money. Not what's my standard of living only, but what's my standard of giving. And hey, look, if you can't talk about it with a close friend, it might be it's become an idol to us. So have you got someone you could say, hey, how's your giving going? Because I'd love you to ask me. Money and then sex. Sex. Colossians is fascinating on this. Uh, Colossians is fascinating. Uh, that little other passage we read, here it is, that first little bit. Put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. They, they could all be sexual, which is, Paul writes, it is idolatry. 
Now, whether that's because you had to go to the temple to do it in Colossae, like a, a sex temple, or whether it's, he's just saying generically, with our hearts, it's idolatry, it's hard to know. But sexual immorality is idolatry. It's the Russian dolls. Idolatry, idol, uh, adultery, idolatry, adultery. And sexual immorality is anything other than the loving, serving sex between husband and wife. That was Jesus' definition. That's the Bible's definition. It has been the church's definition for 2,000 years. Lust, impurity, sexual greed are all out of this church. They're done for the Christian. These are, Paul writes, idolatry. Today, sex has moved from when I was a teenager. It was an activity you did. Now it is, of course, not an activity you do, but an identity you are. For the Christian, the question is, it is an idolatry that I worship. So if we have a sexual activity or identity problem, really it's an idolatry problem. If we've got those as a problem, we've got the wrong God. Or we've got God wrong. As it was for Solomon. And the danger is we've been enslaved. That is, sexual immorality is not the big sin idolatry is. Here's the cheesy bumper sticker. When you can't control your bod, you've got the wrong God. When you can't control your bod, you've got the wrong God. So for some, security is really our God. Security is actually the God that we worship. So we fantasize about a perfect partner. And worship them in our minds because they get us to our heaven of being secure. But God's the only secure place in the world. He is our rock and our fortress. So we put our hope in Him, not in our fantasy. For others, it might be we worship a God who's a bit like the God of the Bible if we squint our eyes. But, but He's mean. And He doesn't give us what we want or what we think we need so we think God will never give me anything good, so instead I have to snatch sexual immorality now to top up my pleasure bank so we indulge in a look too long or a thought too impure because God's mean. He's holding out on me. But God's kindness knows no end. If we don't have something, it's because it's not good for us and we don't need it. Reputation may be the God of others. And sex is merely a way to enhance that reputation. Well, until the, the idol of reputation is smashed, sexual immorality will always rear its ugly head. And there will be Russian doll layers of idolatry and adultery, idolatry and adultery, that is behind our activity or our identity. So let's get our God right, because then we'll get our bod right. Because what happens in our bed starts in our head, as Alan Chappell says. It won't be easy. I've noticed that the, God, that the dog of sexual immorality barks loudest when it's locked outside in the cold. That's when it howls the most. When the decisions I have enslaved get killed, that's when they make the most noise. But we must do it because, look at that verse, verse 6, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That means we're not mucking around. Solomon in chapter 11, verse 9. 
the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And so in Colossians, the Lord became angry because our hearts have turned away in idolatry. Unless we root out our idols and have the right God, that means we can control our God. And again, is there someone you can talk to? And let's agree on a little code right now. Let's just call it the stuff that Ed was talking about. Don't call it sex, Ed. That's, I've, I've, I've had that in class. I don't mind being called Christian Ed sometimes, but just say to a friend, hey, you know that stuff that Ed was talking about? Wink. Would you like to talk about it? And if they don't know what that means, that's fine. Find someone else. It doesn't have to be awkward, but it's the beginning of a conversation. And boy, Satan hates it when we're accountable to one another. He hates it because a hidden sin is a thriving sin. Well, for Solomon, he gave some decisions. Those decisions enslave. But as always in the Bible, there's wonderful news as there are decisions that save. We saw that the decisions that saved. The Lord became angry, verse 9, with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. It wasn't a mystery to him. It's appeared to him twice, he has. Solomon was twice given a word and he didn't take God at his word. So God is angry. He was given a command and he disobeyed. If we disobey a fair, loving parent or boss, or judge, if we disobey them, we know what they'll be. They'll be hell to pay. And so for Solomon, there is hell to pay. Because that's his attitude, verse 11, since this is your attitude, you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you. Since that's your attitude, God will rip it away. But verse 13 offers a little glimpse of hope. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from your son. I will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And then verse 33, if you've got it open of that same chapter, it goes on and on. Verse 33, it says, God God says, I will do this because they've forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes. That language, they have forsaken me. They have forsaken me, abandoned me, been, been separated from God. And so God separates, abandons, and forsakes them. They had the wrong authority. So now they have no authority. And anarchy reigns. Solomon is gone from the throne. Wisdom cannot save Israel. Only their God can save them. And save them, he does. Even in the judgment of the tribes being ripped away, there is mercy. Verse 12, not in Solomon's lifetime. Verse 13, not the whole kingdom. And then in verse 36, we see more glimmers of hope. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I choose to put my name. God will always keep one tribe, a little flickering lamp in Jerusalem, another son of David, to give it another shot down the line. 
We want someone born of, of David's line in David's town. I forget, what's David's town? Oh, Bethlehem, that's right. We want God to keep a lamp alight in Jerusalem. We want another Solomon, another son of David, who decides to save fully and forever. He promises it here, though he should wipe them out. So it's no wonder when Jesus walks along a road, a blind man called Bartimaeus calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. Blind Bartimaeus, though he's never seen light, he knows that the lamp has stayed alight in Jerusalem. That God's name dwells in Jerusalem once more. The line of David is still alive, and this new Solomon, with great wisdom, will decide to save. Now, God says to Solomon, you have forsaken me. But God, Jesus says to God, why have you forsaken me? God spares Solomon and his sons to keep his line alive, but he doesn't spare his own son to keep us alive. Solomon's line is kept alive so that we can live through his next son of David. So the question is, who is our authority? The earthly authorities from chapter 1 and 2, like Adonijah, pretending to be king while God's king sits on the real throne? Or the internal kings of idols and desires that disobey God, are they all the authority? Or will we have David's true son who has mercy on us as our authority, because he is the authority? Will we do what he asks and obey his commands and trust in him as the true king and thrive in his kingdom? One of the things I love about the Bible is how it all stitches together to the point where it almost feels magic. It's not at all magic, the Bible, but it's a little bit magic. And Psalm 72 is exactly that. As it's written about King Solomon, but you're like, that's not Solomon. That's someone else. I mean, it's Solomon. It's definitely Solomon, but it's someone else. I wonder who that could be. So after three Sundays looking at King Solomon, we're just going to read Psalm 72. Let's see if we can listen out for when it's Solomon, but when it's not. When it's looking for the next son of David who has mercy on us. Psalm 72. It's so specific, but it's so prophetic. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon for all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him, his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. 
For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He'll rescue them from the oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills. May it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him. They will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse.